It's a delightful opportunity that we've each been given this Lord's Day morning to appreciate that things are well with each of us. The capability has been given to us to assemble and to do so in harmony and peacefulness. And truly, what a tremendous worship service we already have been able to enjoy in our singing, our praying, the characteristic of an initial reading of the Word of God. And of course, as we look forward to the other aspects that are still before us. It is, in fact, a blessing that we've each been mightily given on this first day of the week to come together to offer adoration and homage and worship to the great God who has made it possible. As we give thought to an element of the Word of God this morning, we continue to be thankful for each and every individual and every family that's gathered, our membership and visitors alike, and we hope that we each can certainly say that we have been edified and strengthened by our ability to gather this morning. As you might have noted in the bulletin, as well as on the wall to my left, I would ask for a few moments at least that we give some initial thought to a question of restricted fellowship. It is often a word that we use, that word fellowship, and it carries with it such great meaning. It has behind it such a tremendous consideration of interior peacefulness and consideration. Over the next few moments, though, are there instances in which we must understand God commands and has in mind for us to restrict that fellowship? On this next slide, introductory remarks that point us in the way of consideration concerning it might in fact well be these. Fellowship in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is something that is very closely described. It's described in a way that helps us understand that there is not a full and entire freedom with respect to it. Here are these thoughts. I am not sure at all why that is happening. Is it technology sometimes? Something is so interesting. I'll just have to make sure to be aware of that as the lesson proceeds. The Old Testament makes known to us in some ways like these. We might recall in Deuteronomy chapters 7 and 9, both of which point out to us that the children of Israel were in a position that God rather expressly said to them, they were not to make covenants with those who were their neighbors or their surrounding peoples. They were not to intermarry with them. They were not to allow them to intermarry with themselves. There was to be a maintenance of appreciation that they were not those who honored the God of heaven by following His will and doing that which was what He had commanded. Later in the Old Testament, we see the episode of Ben-Hadad, highlighted in 1 Kings 20, as well as another episode in 2 Chronicles chapters 18, 19, and 20, where there God expressly, in fact, judged as guilty one of the kings of ancient Judah because he extended fellowship to one whom he should not have fellowshiped because that man was ungodly. He encouraged that which was not of God and by the king of God's people sharing fellowship with him, That was not to be done. All of that to say this, the New Testament encourages us in many ways to understand the same. 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers. That passage, among many others, that might be mentioned, that at least causes us to think, in the way that you and I live and walk in this world about us, must we be cautious and careful about the way in which we share fellowship with others as if things religiously are right with them? 
this question has no small set of consequences to it. It has, in fact, caused problems in the church throughout the years. Now, as we go to this next slide, it is to be noted specifically some features about this word fellowship. It comes from a Greek word koinonia, and it occurs frequently in the New Testament. And here are some thoughts, in fact, about that word and its occurrences and something that might challenge you and me as we think about its employment and its manifestation in our life today. First of all, you might note with me, it characterizes a relationship in which there is sharing. When brethren in the New Testament were said to enjoy fellowship, it was the fact that they were sharing something exceedingly powerful, something exceedingly mighty. They were sharing something of utmost significance. Furthermore, you might appreciate with me that that which is its basic foundation is, of course, the characteristic of the Christ. His blood is what bonded them together and permitted them to share in the other great matters that they were capable of sharing. It is to be appreciated, too, that there was an intimate bond among those brethren. They loved one another. They were admonished in the attitude of brotherly love in 2 Peter 1.6. Furthermore, they were taught to always appreciate that they were to look upon each other with the attitude of doing what was in the best interest spiritually of the other, even in matters of indifference, even in matters that were, let's say, of expedient character. Out of love, did not Paul say... If it causes my brother to stumble, I will eat no meat until the end of the world. That text of 1 Corinthians 8, verses 10 and following, still challenges each of us, doesn't it? To understand that out of that highlight for the love of fellow Christians and their spiritual betterment, even the characteristic that helps us see that there's something about fellowship that is to be noted so mightily. On the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, verse 42, we're told there that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. These initial brethren shared and did so so mightily. Certainly, they shared in their essence of partaking of the Lord's Supper. They shared in the characteristic of the doctrine delivered to them by the apostles. They shared in the matter of their monetary giving. That element of sharing only points us to this next text. It was through the avenue of the gospel, Philippians 1 verse 5. Paul was so thankful, and he also was so commendable to those who had shared with him through the concourse of the gospel. Perhaps it begs the question today, what about the manner in which we are to exhibit fellowship and sharing? I say all of that specifically to say, is Christian fellowship restricted? That is the last question on that slide. By that question, let's be a bit more specific. The next slide will highlight some of that which will come before us because it asks us this. Fellowship. Several years ago, a great question began to arise, not only in this local area, but in fact in places really not all that far from here. Can congregations enjoy fellowship with those that are recognized as, let's say, being of different supposed faith? 
Can there be a swapping of preachers in pulpits between, let's say, a church of Christ and a Baptist church or a Methodist church? And you can fill in the blank with any other kind or any other name that you might wish. Could there be other occasions in which a unity was appreciated between supposed distinct faiths? No small amount of discussion arose because of that. No small amount of consideration and questioning arose because of that. In fact, there were strong positions each way. I would ask that perhaps this morning we again ask the question, what about the matter of restriction when it comes to Christian fellowship? May we, in light of providing supposed approval, fellowship any and all under the banner of the love of Christ Jesus? Did He fellowship one and all regardless of what they thought, believed, and felt, and practiced? Does He, in fact, command us to do the same today? The verse, as our lesson text that Brother Cale read for us a little earlier this morning, is one that I would wish us to consider first. Merely as a matter of looking in somewhat great detail to it, and I've listed it for us here for us to consider. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. That rendering and that reading, again, for us to consider, points us to this consideration. You'll notice he says, we have fellowship one with another. If that verse had gone no further than that, then we might understand what mightn't we. The understanding that indeed this fellowship is exceedingly broad and ought to be extended greatly. But it is to be noted, isn't it, that there is a condition that precedes it. If we walk in the light... As He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. You'll notice at the top, but if we walk in the light. John, in the verses preceding that, had highlighted so beautifully the fact that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, verses 5 and 6. Furthermore, He quickly asserts to each of us the understanding now, if we... It's not just a discussion about God any longer. If we walk in the light, day by day, as you and I are thus able to walk in the light, under the pristine beauty and leadership and power of the leadership afforded to us in the Word of God, under the banner of the Holy Spirit's revelation to us, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, then... We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. Those comments at the bottom, I would ask that we appreciate. There is a condition toward this matter of the subject of fellowship, isn't there? It is the case, John did say, if we walk in the light. Are there those in the world who are walking in the light? Are there those in the world who are not walking in the light? To look at them one at a time, there are those the New Testament defines as having, being in a position to meet that consideration. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 8 and 9, we notice on that occasion that Paul said that we are fellow laborers with God. We are His husbandry. And he specifically accorded himself with others by the word we. There were those who were walking in the light, meeting this condition, and as such, Paul happily enjoined fellowship with them. As you can also see in Ephesians 2, verses 20 to 22, 
as that second chapter of the Ephesian letter comes to its conclusion, Paul makes an inspired description of this greatness of the church and the fact that we work together in it. It is a lovely enterprise to give thought, isn't it, to the nature of the church that the God of heaven has founded. When Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18, He spoke about the establishment of the greatest entity upon earth, the one founded upon the greatness of Himself as the Son of God, and the one through whom one can appreciate the sojourn that leadeth into heaven. It is the case, isn't it, that the church is described like this in Ephesians 5.23. Jesus is the Savior of the body. We must be in that body, faithful members in it, faithful workers in it. We must then enjoy the nature of the fellowship described in that verse. If we walk in the light, that does beg the question though, doesn't it? Am I walking in the light? Am I striving in a daily fashion to serve the Master? Or am I trying to be stubborn and rebellious and do my will but yet call it His will? We must walk in the light as He is in the light. God is light indeed and in Him is no darkness at all. The thought then that there are those who are walking in the light and there are thus those with whom fellowship can be openly enjoined. There are also those who do not meet that condition. We know that's true because the Scriptures reveal that to us. The point that I raised earlier, and one that again was a strong point of discussion many years ago and still from time to time. We know that God is love. Does He want all people to be saved? Absolutely, 1 Timothy 2.4. He wants all men to come into a knowledge of the truth, and He wants all to come ultimately to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. But in their state of being lost, He doesn't approve what they're now doing. He doesn't approve the sin that may now characterize their way of belief in life. Look at just a few of these verses with me. In Romans 16, verse 17, the last chapter of the Roman letter, Paul, in writing to the Romans, specifically reminded them to mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. Does that sound as if there's a restriction in fellowship? Paul said, mark them. Mark who? Mark those which cause offenses and divisions contrary to the doctrine that you have learned. There is, you see, an absolute basis with regard to this matter of fellowship, and it has to do with the foundation, as we noted earlier, of the truth of God's Scriptures. When there are those who in loving character follow and believe and appreciate that, then fellowship can be extended to them. But to those who believe differently, who think that things are not as God said that they are, and who in fact walk by a process and method that's far removed from the Word of God, that verse says, mark them and avoid them. Now when Paul made use of that word avoid... It certainly is to be noted he would ensure that one would try to reach and teach them. But he made note that in terms of letting them influence and guide you into their way of thinking, you avoid them. You do not allow the strength of their supposed position, the matter in which they give consideration, to lead you to that way of belief that's contrary to what you've heard. The Scriptures of God are absolute, aren't they? In Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9, we still hear time and again 
the inspired apostles say about the nature of that unique gospel. Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As if we needed to hear that again, he reiterates it in the next verse. As if we've looked at Romans 16 and seen that there's the need to mark some who walk not in fellowship. Look at another passage in Ephesians 5.11, speaking about that matter of darkness. On that occasion, the inspired apostle said, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. We thus understand from that passage that not only was it the case in ancient Ephesus, but of course it continues to be the case. There are those who walk in darkness, and we must not have the kind of fellowship spoken of in the New Testament with them. We mustn't condone that which they do, approve that which they believe, because they are walking unfruitfully in a world of darkness in a world that's distanced from the loving power of the majesty of Christ's present salvation offered to them. Fellowship, you see, must be closely guarded and ever watched with great care. As if that isn't enough, in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, we see in that last chapter in the 2 Thessalonian letter that Paul, again, rather powerfully, but also rather directly, said, Withdraw from that ungodly fellow." In other words, there was even a matter of church discipline when there was one who walked disorderly. And the mental image is this. The mental image is a group of individuals much like soldiers who march in step. Paul said when there's one that marches out of step, when his or her present matter of life is not in harmony with and fellowship, though they've been encouraged and taught and pleaded with, when they're walking disorderly, Withdraw fellowship from him or her. We know that the matter of church discipline thus even has a role to play as the final element in bringing about hopefully a change in the life of those who would walk disorderly. All of that does help us see, doesn't it, that fellowship as highlighted within the pages of the New Testament is something that is to be closely understood as important. And it is, of course, to be guarded with care. We can't fellowship those who walk disorderly. We as the church in the element of maintaining purity, the great purity highlighted in the Word of God, should understand we can't fellowship those in error as if we approve of what they're doing, as if God approves of it. That text I noted earlier, even though it's in the Old Testament, what principle is found in it? It again was in 2 Chronicles chapters 18 through 20. On that occasion, the king the king of Judah. He was one who had been invited to enter into a war with an enemy nation, one who had little interest in the things of God, had little interest in upholding what Jehovah God would approve. The king of Judah went right into battle as if he could openly enjoy fellowship with this one who himself was an idolater's king, who himself enjoined individuals to do that which was an error. When the battle was over and the king came back, God sent a prophet, the prophet Hanani, to talk to the Judean king. Shouldest thou approve and have fellowship with the ungodly was the direct question that that man was asked. And obviously he had no good answer. God wishes His people to understand that they, upon the bedrock foundation of the truth of God's Word, enjoy fellowship with those who walk in the light.
And those who do not walk in the light need to, need to be taught and admonished and urged, but fellowship with them cannot be extended as long as they are living that life of error and believing and practicing that which is not of truth. This passage before us in 1 John chapter 1, in fact, only leads us to consider the following thoughts. The basis for Christian fellowship, as we have noted in this passage, again, walking in the light, is found to be the beautiful matter of doctrine. You and I know that human beings are often friendly individuals and sometimes we might want to base our fellowship upon, he's a nice guy. I work with him. He works side by side at the factory with me. But that, you see, is not a basis for fellowship as is described in the New Testament. He might well be a wonderfully nice man. But in terms of does he believe the things of the truth and does he walk in the light? As one gives thought to texts like these, Galatians 3, 26 and 7, Paul, in writing to the churches of Galatia, he said, The nature of what brought them into Christ was their obedience to the gospel. You are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Who then has put on Christ? Was it just anyone, a nice man, a guy, kind, friendly neighbor, or what did it go deeper than that? The one who had put on Christ was the one who was in Christ, and that had happened in baptism. And Paul enjoined, those were the ones that were the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Just because a person claims to be the child of God doesn't mean that he is. Just because a person makes an open claim to be a believer in the Word of God does not mean he's a faithful adherent to what it teaches. The Word of God, you see, requires that we simply not hear it but do it, James 1.22. He says, but be ye doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. You and I and yea, anyone else deceives themselves mightily when they hear some element of the Word and fail to apply it, thinking all the while that they are right with God. You and I might appreciate even further than that that there are other passages like 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 as well as 1 John 2 verse 5 that remind us again about walking in the light is walking in harmony with God's Word. We live in a world, as you and I know so well, that religiously is a confused mess. Ever since, in fact, the beginning of or the end of the Reformation era, all kinds of supposed churches exist going by this name and that name and some other name. And there is no question about the sincerity in the hearts of so many. And there's no question about the character of the desire that might be within so many. But our question today is not the question about their sincerity. It's the question about, or have they obeyed the truth? And the question is, are they walking in the light? And that's not an idle question, is it? It's a question that is the bedrock of 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light... As He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. The blood of Christ, what a notable, powerful, marvelous entity. That great sacrifice that Jesus offered, because of all those reasons, you might note the bottom. The Christian fellowship, this thing that we've described so far, we might notice 
some more features about that text of 1 John 1. The word walk is used. If we walk in the light, the tense of that verb is in fact present. And it's active in terms of its thrust. That means that you and I can't come out of the baptismal waters and claim that that's sufficient. It's an ongoing, daily walking in the light of the Master's love. You and I may have been baptized five years, ten years, fifty years. Still, that verse is as needful then as it ever was. Are we daily, ongoingly, walking in the light? For if so, we have fellowship one with another and with the God of heaven and with His Son. And that kind of fellowship runs deep and into all eternity, doesn't it? That kind of fellowship challenges us perhaps even in light of this. Christian fellowship, as we've seen so far without question, must be noted as a restricted thing. It cannot just be offered and enjoyed with anyone and everyone, regardless of what they believe and practice, but rather it's for those that walk in the light. It is a thankful matter that there is another passage. I would ask that you give thought with me to it. It's in 2 John, verses 9, 10, and 11. I've also listed it for our consideration, but it too is something that has a great deal to say about the topic before us this morning. 2 John, beginning in verse number 9. Look to yourselves, I'm sorry, verse 9. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine... Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. The scene of that ancient day is one that perhaps is easily imagined by each of us. That was that particular day in the long ago when as individuals would proceed on their way in various communities, the places to stay were the homes and places of abode of the people in that locale. There weren't hotels, at least in large number, and there weren't motels and beds and breakfasts and things like that. Here, as John wrote this little letter of 2 John, he then did say, If there come, verse 10, any unto you and bring not this doctrine, there was a particular doctrine in the mind of John. And if someone comes by way of visitation, missionary character or otherwise, and bring not this doctrine, verse 10, Receive him not into your house. You are not to openly welcome one and all, regardless what they believe, think, and practice, and enjoy fellowship with them as if you condone what they're saying and you support what they're doing. Verse 10, neither bid him Godspeed. Don't wish the best wishes of God on his efforts, because verse 11, he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. If you encourage or support that which he's doing with it being against the will of God, you are a partaker in that which he's doing. You're a supporter of it. You're an encourager of it. And as such, one must indeed appreciate that careful matter of the restriction concerning the things of fellowship. You'll notice these comments then seem directly and naturally to follow. One by one, as the phrases and words of that text we just read are noted, I would ask you, perhaps briefly, to note some of them with me. First of all, whosoever, verse number 9. 
Whosoever transgresseth. John isn't just talking about one person. Anybody, he says. That word whosoever is so frequently employed in the Scriptures as one descriptive of any individual in the allotment of how this verse may apply. Whosoever transgresseth. That word literally means to go onward, to transgress the limits of true doctrine. There is, if you please, a restricted element. And in terms of the boundary of what God has allowed and approved, when there's any person who goes beyond it, who proceeds no matter what the reason may be, it may be ignorance, it may be willful disobedience, but when this individual proceeds beyond that limit of true doctrine, next word, abideth not. That word literally means to break fellowship. It literally means to break association with. Whosoever, reading the verse with some of these meanings, any person who goes beyond the true doctrine and breaks fellowship with the doctrine of Christ. You'll notice that word fellowship, at least in part, has appeared by way of one of the meanings of that word abideth. John goes on to identify that basis as the doctrine of Christ, and he says... Of course, this is the teaching authorized by Jesus through His inspired writers. We have one more time seen this basis of fellowship. This should be the common foundation to which each of us can turn and in loving character and in powerful harmony obey its precepts, longingly awaiting the great reward it promises to those that are the faithful. But here John, by inspiration, says to that individual who goes beyond it, steps beyond fellowship with it, he says, he hath not God. This person does not, in fact, have fellowship with God, though he may think he does. He hath not God, which means he does not know Him or share intimately with Him. This is a rather breathtaking text in many ways, isn't it? It's strong. It's powerful. It's to the point. This individual not only has not God, it says, He that abideth hath both the Father and the Son. Now that comes from the latter part of verse number 9. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ. Just the opposite of that opening statement and opening definition we made. This person who does abide in the doctrine of Christ, the text says, he has both the Father and the Son. This one not only enjoys fellowship with those of like-minded faith, but he also has fellowship with the God of heaven and, of course, with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship, as we've seen yet again, must be closely considered. It must not be freely extended, but it must be lovingly extended to those of like precious harmony in a foundation of the doctrine of Christ. The next verse goes on to say, If there bring not this doctrine, that is, if one comes to your house, to your abode, to your locale, does not bring this doctrine, he says, Don't you bid him Godspeed. And furthermore, verse number 10, don't you receive him into your house. Now that may seem unkind and it may seem unfriendly, but might we notice there's a higher regard than mere mortal friendliness. That person's soul is at stake. That person needs to be apprised of the fact that he or she is not walking faithfully under the banner of the gospel of Christ. Doesn't it remind us, at least in part, of that scene as Acts 18 closes? 
there was a man named Apollos who was bold and who was an eloquent proclaimer of what he believed to be the case, apparently. However, he needed to be expounded and taught the way of God more perfectly. And are we not reminded on that equation that Aquila and Priscilla did that very thing? They took him aside, taught that man. We notice they didn't condone what he taught. They didn't uphold him and just for the sake of being friendly say, that's all right. They rather expounded unto him, teaching him that way of God more perfectly. Acts 18 verses 24 and following. For reasons like all of that, that it bring us to perhaps one set of ideas left in terms of these verses. The fellowship that we have seen highlighted, especially in those closing two verses, verses 10 and 11 of 2 John 1, perhaps notice, receive Him not into your house. There was a direct command not to extend fellowship to those that were not walking according to the light to those not walking in that way that God had spoken. Now, you and I recognize what that means. That doesn't mean that we must never talk to them because there's no way to convert them, it would seem, unless we have some means of communication with them. But what John said is, don't you give approval so that they have the impression, as well as others, that you are encouraging and a supporter of what they're doing. The gospel of Jesus Christ is very specific. And it is something that demands our utmost attention and the restriction of fellowship. Those who don't walk in the light are not to be fellowshiped by us in the sense of encouraging their religious activity, in the sense of approving that which they claim to be doing under their banner of faithfulness. For according to the definition of the Word of God, it says, Mark and avoid them, which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and received. That passage of Romans 16, 17 perhaps allows us to close that thought by asking again about verse number 11. Isn't it a somewhat fearful thing when we read, He that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. It is a rather fearful thing, isn't it, to ponder, I might well be a partaker of his evil? That's what John wrote. That's what the Holy Spirit said. If I support, encourage, and endorse that which He is doing. Sometimes in our world, we find the words a bit difficult. When we encounter those who wish to teach and admonish upon us things which we understand to not be in harmony with the Word of God, sometimes it's difficult to find the best words that we hope in kindness will allow them to think about the error of their way. These verses do tell us, though, that we must search with diligence to find those words. We mustn't just allow the moment to pass and to, in fact, shake their hand and if, as if all is religiously well, even despite the fact they've taught us error and have tried to encourage it upon us. All of that, I suspect, leads us to these concluding thoughts this morning. Christian fellowship is a mighty precious thing. The fellowship we enjoy with each other is exceeded only by the fellowship we share with Jesus and with God Himself. And that Christian fellowship can be extended with all the graciousness of the Word of God to those that walk in the light. And furthermore, we notice that to extend it beyond that bound is something that these two verses alone have strongly condemned.
today as we give thought to where we stand, there were those in the Lord's day who taught things that were inappropriate, taught things that were not right. Paul and those New Testament apostles often had things to say about safeguarding the integrity of life and truth. May you and I strive to do the same in our Christian walk, in our Christian life today. We can be so thankful for faithful brethren, but we can pray earnestly for opportunities to reach those who are not walking in the light. Today, what about your life and mine? Are you and I walking in the light? If so, we know the fellowship that we enjoy with one another, with fellow brothers and sisters who in fact are the precious ones of God, 2 Peter 1.1. But we also know the fellowship we enjoy with Jesus and with God. But on the other hand, if you and I are not walking in the light, if there's one in this audience who you know that you're right now just not walking in the light, it may be that you have never begun to walk in the light. You've never been baptized for the remission of your sins. That could be taken care of in rather quick order this morning. Do you believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? If so, then you're no doubt prepared to repent of your sins, to confess the marvelous name of Jesus as the Son of God, and then to be humbly and simply baptized for the remission of sins. If we could help you in doing that today, it would be a fantastic and joyous day for you and for the angels of heaven, Luke 15, 7. If you have known that way of faithfulness, you enjoyed fellowship with God, with Christ, and with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but due to some gradual and slow things in life, you've come to walk in a way that's not in the light. You've begun to walk in a way that's known by you and others to be in disharmony with the truth of God. Why not make that right today? Come back to your first love. The church in Ephesus had left their first love, but Jesus admonished them to come back, and He does the same to you. If you would like to come back to that first love today, notice that the Lord invites you. You again need to believe that He is who He said He was, and you need to believe the fact that you've been in error. You need to repent of those sins and confess them, and He'll be happy to forgive them. If we could be of help to you today, may we always remember that there is a restriction to our Christian fellowship, and that's because that's the way God taught it. If we could help one or more today in your response to the truth, openly and publicly to the gospel, will you not let that be known while together we stand and while we sing?